Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast and the Managing Director of B-Squared. We started the Sendcast to help improve knowledge around SEND for professionals in schools, parents and other people working with young people with SEND. Now this is a special episode, this is not our normal episode, this is a special. Last week, Lorraine Peterson, OBE, came down to the B-Squared offices to deliver a free session on the SEND Green Paper for our Training for Education website. It consisted of a half-hour presentation, followed by a discussion with myself and ending with a Q&A answering questions from the people who were there. We had over 300 schools join us live on the day. This podcast is the audio from that session, a chance to listen to the presentation, discussion, and the questions and answers. It is around two hours long, but to be prepared. Now, if you don't want to listen to it, if you want to go and watch the session instead, it is still available for free on the Training for Education website. You just need to register and purchase the free session. It's free, no credit card details are needed, but you do have to go through that process of buying it. And it is available for you to watch whenever you want. Okay, so you can just go along, register, and start watching that video. So if you start listening to this and go, actually, I want to watch this, you can. So to access the free video, go to www.trainingforeducation.com. Now, let's get on with the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B-Squared and the Chair of the Virtual SEND Conference. For those who don't know who B-Squared are, we create assessment content and software to help show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make and help identify next steps. Today, we're running a session around the SEND Green Paper with the amazing Lorraine Peterson OBE. For those who are new to the Virtual Send Conference, this is a conference we run online in this studio. Our next event is on the 20th of May and is focusing on the importance of well-being for all. The cost for our conferences is £60 for the whole school. And we have a nice discount code for you on the screen. Um, so you can get a nice 30% discount when you purchase access. Please use that code SENDREVIEW when you check out. The Virtual Send Conference is designed to be as useful and accessible as possible. And like this session, all sessions are recorded and available after the event on demand forever. Now, in a moment, Lorraine is going to be delivering a presentation, taking us through the green paper and what it all means. Lorraine and I will then have a discussion around the various aspects of the green paper, touching on some of the stuff in the white paper, probably, because they're quite linked. And then this will be followed by our Q&A, where we go through and answer your questions. If you do have any questions or comments, please use the chat system to join in. Or if you're on Twitter, please ask questions or comment with the hashtag SendReviewLive. And I will now hand over to Lorraine, who will take us through the green paper. Yes, thank you to Dale and uh, Training for Education for inviting me here today to do this uh, response to the uh, Send Review. So I'm going to start with just a little bit of background information. Uh, I'm sure you all know this, but it just sets the scene um, as we go forward. And I'm going back to 2009 when Brian Lamb did his inquiry into uh, parental confidence in the SEN system. Um, the report came out at the end of 2009. It was damning 
Um, and lots of parents had were very um, concerned that, you know, they didn't have a voice and they weren't at the heart of the system and they had to tell their story a number of times, et cetera. So that report was, was quite a pivotal uh, start, really, to the journey that we've been on in terms of SEND um, over the last few years. In 2010, the following year, there was an Ofsted report which was called um, A Statement is Not Enough. Um, that was back in the day when we had statements, not education, health and care plans. And this, this Ofsted report was also quite, quite damning in terms of, you know, our children who had got statements were not getting um, a quality of education to support them. So we got both of those documents that were not very complimentary about the SEN system. And then in 2010, we also had a general election when we had a, a new government. We had the coalition government. We'd had a Labour government for 15 years prior to that. And those of us that were working in the SEN system, and I was in Nason at the time, really felt that SEND probably wouldn't be on an agenda um, as we went forward. And then we were all really surprised in 2011 when we actually agreed paper, which was called Support and Aspiration, a new approach to special educational needs and disability. And it was a fabulous green paper. Um, and, you know, they went through the same process we're going through now. And I would reckon we probably got about half of what was proposed in the paper at that time. What that then meant was that eventually that became the Children and Families Act in 2014. And then in 2015, we got the final edition of the SEND Code of Practice, which I'm sure you use on a regular basis. So, you know, we've been using that now since 2014, since the Children and Family Act came in. And then in 2019, Gavin Wilson, who was then the um, Secretary that he wanted to launch a review um, because he felt although the reforms of 2014 had done a lot of good things, um, there were still some issues around delivering what was written to the Children and Families Act and the Code of Practice. And so the September 2019 seemed to be the right time to, if you like, take stock of the system. Sitting alongside all of that had been the Ofsted CQC local area inspections, which had started in 2016. And they were um, sort of showing that there was a number, over 50%, in fact, of local areas that had not embedded the reforms as well as they should have done. So all of that led to um, you know, the government feeling it was time for a review. Unfortunately, we then went, we had Brexit, we had uh, COVID. And so it was March this year, March 2022, we finally got the SCND Green Paper. And we are in a consultation. The Green Paper is, um, is, is all proposals um, and it is all out for consultation. So it's called SCND Review, Right Support, Right Place, Right Time. It was launched on the 29th of March 2022, um, just prior to the Easter holidays. And there is, a, there, or there, there is a consultation of 13 weeks, which at the moment is closing on the 1st of July. However, um, last week, the uh, Children and Families Minister was asked what had happened to the accessible versions of the consultation document. There was meant to be a, a Braille version and, and an accessible version for people with learning difficulties and disabilities. And he, he said that they, had been, um, that they hadn't been done yet. Um, and he did state that it he would probably announce that there would be a longer consultation period 
to ensure that everybody had a chance to respond. However, I've not heard yet whether that's going to happen or not. But I would imagine that, you know, in order to give everybody a fair chance, it probably will probably go to the end of term, I would imagine. So the document is 100 plus pages long. There's six chapters. There's 22 questions. Um, it brings together special education needs, disability in schools, both mainstream and special, but and alternative provision. So alternative provision has got a much bigger part than previous green papers, and we, um, I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. It has to be read alongside the school's white paper, which was launched about two weeks before the green paper. Just to remind you that white papers are not for consultation. There might be little bits in there that are being consulted on, but the majority is already decided. It's, it's government decision, if you like, about the future of schools and education going forward. So this review sits in there and there are, you know, connections between the two. There's also um, imminent an independent review of social care for children and young people. And once that comes out, we will have to read that alongside this, this SEND review. And within the, this green paper, it refers to we will, we will wait to see what the outcome of the independent review of social care is. So obviously there is going to be some joined upness. Um, the earliest that any change will be seen will be September 2023. And I don't think it will be. I think it's more likely to be 2024 or 2025. If you work on the last one, we got the Green Paper in 2011. We got the Children and Families Act in 2014. So if legislation has to be changed, it's probably going to be 2025. There might be some small changes from September 2023, or I would imagine there will probably be some pilots or some tests or some trials that may start um, to see how well some of these things can be embedded. What I would just say to you at this moment is it is up for consultation. The DFE will listen to anything that you've got to say. So please, by the end of today, hopefully you'll have a bit more information about what's in the paper. And you don't have to answer all 22 questions. So if there's two or three things that I talk about or that you feel really passionate about, you can just answer those questions. So please, I urge every one of you to um, respond if you can. So the government took some of the key facts and these this data is all from um, the January census 2021. So um, the January census 2022, the, the data hasn't been published yet. So this is quite old data in real terms now, but it's what we've got. Um, and this data showed that about 1.4 million pupils were identified with SEN and um, that's about 15.8% um, of school pupils. And that's rising year on year. Um, and I think that given where we've come from over the last two and I'm hearing from people working in schools that the number of children with SEN is, is rising um, due to, you know, um, concerns that they've had um, and not having support and, and uh, advice, et cetera, um, from other professionals um, over the last two years. So that's made up of about 12% on SEN support and nearly 4% with an EHCP. Um, and EHCP has risen again exponentially um we also we do have to remember that some of those youngsters are in um further education um uh, because we now have to take into account the 19 to 25 age which we didn't uh, do in the past so about 77% of all pupils are either in mainstream or special schools the others are made up of early years fe and then those that are um electedly home educated 
Um, and then uh, about 83%, nearly 83% of pupils that are in alternative provision have also been identified as SEND, which is why they want the government, the alternative provision, if you like, sector to be much bigger, tighter part of um, what's available for, for children and young people. Um, the high needs budget has risen by 40% in the last uh, three years. Um, but we have got local authorities that have way up spent on their high needs budget. Um, and I'm not sure how much of that 40% has actually come into schools and how much of it has just been at local authority level to, you know, meet the needs of just paying off the debt, really. Um, of those local authorities that have been inspected through um, the Ofsted CQC local area inspections, um, over 50% have had to produce a written statement of action, which means that, in, in a sense, they have not implemented the, the things they should have implemented since 2014. And even now, and we're down to about the last 10, 15 local areas to be inspected, we're still seeing local, local areas that are still having to produce written statements of action. So we know that across the country there are some real issues in some local authorities. And then finally, if we look at the data, and, and SEND data is not as good as it should be, but what we do find is there is low academic achievement for SEM pupils across all phases. So whether they're at the end of key stage one, key stage two, key stage four, that there's, there's that sort of uh, feeling that, you know, our SEND pupils are not doing as well as they should be. So this led the DFE, the government, to come up with the, the key challenges. Um, the first one is about outcomes um, and they're, they're poor, which I've just said. Navigating the system um, and alternative provision is, is not a positive experience for too many children, young people and their families. And again, if we go back to 2009 and Brian Lamb's report, that says to me we haven't moved very far in, in that considerable time. And then despite unprecedented investment, the system is not delivering value for money for children, young people and families. And again, it's about, you know, is there enough money, but it's just not being used effectively? Or is it about there's not enough money because the needs of our young people are far more complex, maybe, than they used to be? So what the government are saying is there's been a vicious cycle of interventions, low confidence, and inefficient resource allocation, and that's what's driving these three key challenges. So these three key challenges are what the whole review is, is really all about. I'm going to just talk through the chapters now. So chapter one is very much an introduction. It talks about the case for change. Uh, it sets out the system since 2014, so a little bit that I've just talked to you. It talks about why the review, so what are the aims? It talks about the poorer outcomes and it talks about the negative experiences. So that it sort of sets the scene really in chapter one. And what, what the goal is at the end of this process, if you like, is what's written in the yellow bit in the centre of this. And that's that children and young people achieve outcomes which prepare them for adulthood. Um, and nobody's going to argue with that. What it doesn't say is that all of our SEND pupils must be at age expected because we know they're not going to be. And I do have an issue around the white paper when it talks about 90% of pupils at the end of Key Stage 2 will be meeting national expected standards. And I'm sure that's something that Dale will pick up with me when we have our discussion. Um, but I do think that all of us working with children with SEN, if we are preparing them for adulthood, then that actually is, is where we should be. We, we want these young people to lead 
um, as, as good a lives as they possibly can right the way through their educational life, but also um, when they go into adulthood and, if possible, live independently. So chapter two is where it all really starts. And chapter two is all about having a national system. So although local authorities will still have the financial delegation, so it will still be local authorities that we work with in terms of local provision, there will be a national system that is being implemented. So all all schools, all local authorities, anybody within the system is following that system. The way I see that really is that that will be... um, you know, something that sets out, this is what we would expect every school to provide every pupil. So that's that ordinarily available, if you like, or um, in in old money, um, you know, the the sort of level one uh, support or um, wave one support, whatever we want to call it, but that's what we would expect. So that's through that differentiated, high quality teaching with adjustments and adaptations. Um, and then I think it will it will go on to. So this is what we would expect for, um, you know, a young person at this age uh, who's on SEN support, um, who has got speech and language uh, difficulties. So that it will break it down into what we think would would need to be doing. And then, you know, EHCP, um, you know, at, at sort of um, tier four or um, wave, what, sorry, tier three or wave three. That's how I see it. It may not be like that. That's just how I perceive it. And within that, there will be some new national SEND standards. So there will be some standards by which schools are measured, if you like, but also local authorities are measured um, in terms of that. In order to do all of that, we need to update the code of practice because obviously there will be things in that that are um, different. They want to establish some new local SEND partnerships, which will include... Um, not just professionals, but parents. It will include health and social care. And they will become, if you like, the sort of key, the key group of people in a local area who will make some of those um, decisions like whether we're going to assess or whether um, we're we're going to uh, issue a plan. So those sort of things will be done through um, those partnerships. They also want every single local authority to produce an inclusion plan because there needs to be a real focus on inclusion and all schools um, being inclusive and taking pupils with SEN. And that's, that's a key driver in this document in terms of mainstream schools being becoming more inclusive Of course, there is an issue with that because the accountability measures of our system um, are at odds with that because obviously the more SEM pupils you take, it is likely, not always, but it is likely that that will also affect any final results. So again, we need to be thinking about that. There's also going to be what they're calling um, a tailored list of suitable settings, if you like. So every local authority will devise a list of settings that parents and carers can choose from. Um, and, and again, I think that's that's got, will have some positives. I think there will be some negatives there. Um, if the local authorities are only looking at settings that are within their locality, then that will mean that some of our independent and non-maintained settings may not get onto that list. And, and that would be a concern for some of those very complex 
needs where those those young people you know need some of that um, you know high level specialist support. Um, but it will also mean that local authorities have to think very very carefully about what they're offering at a local level. Um, because again, there's an awful lot of funding that goes out of local authorities um, that is being used, if you like, for those um, independent non-maintained sector schools that maybe some could be offered um, internally. They're, they're also talking about you know, having a, a more regional approach for some of those low incidence needs. So things like VI and HI, it might be that actually local areas get together um, and, and form, if you like, a regional uh, 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 commissioning group to commission some of those sort of uh, low needs uh, support. And then finally, in this particular chapter, it's about the redress system. And basically what it is saying is that they are proposing that the mediation process is will become mandatory. So every single parent uh, must go through mediation before they go to tribunal. Again, partly to try and cut down some of the tribunals that are happening. Um, I think it's something like 92% of all tribunals actually find in favour of the parents anyway. And so if we could cut out some of the, the money that goes to tribunal and get that support and help at mediation, that would not only cut out an awful lot of stress and angst for our families, it might also put some money back into the sort of system as well. So that's the single national send and alternative provision system. That's chapter two. So chapter three is all about excellent provision from early years to adulthood. It starts off by talking about the additional funding that's going into schools. Um, and again, I think that schools have got to be very aware of what is coming into their budget that is meant to be for SEN. Um, you know, every school gets a notional SEN budget or a, a, a additional needs budget. Um, and, you know, school leaders will know that what that is, but SENCOs tend not to. And I think it's really key that SENCOs really find out what is coming in the school and how is that being used. Um, the second thing that in this chapter, which is, will be, is really important to SENCOs, and I'm sure many of you are SENCOs that are on here, is actually replacing um, the, the SENCO award for a new SENCO National Professional Qualification. So it will become an MPQ SENCO. Um, and again, we've had the national award now for a, a number of years, back in 2008, nine, I think it was. Um, and, you know, we've got thousands of SENCOs in our schools that have been through that award and have done really, really well uh, using it. Um, I think why, the, 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 if you like, the, the things that I think, this why this is being consulted upon is one, because it brings it into line with um, the MPQ programmes that are already being run for our schools. So the MPQH, the MPQSL, uh, Middle Leader, um, you know, and I think they've just introduced an early years and a, an English lead one. So it's coming, if you like, a bit of a sort of national um, identity. The other thing that I think would be a real positive is that if it is um, the same as the other MPQs, it will be funded by the government. So that means that SENCOs do not have to go cap in hand to their school. Um, you know, although you, you have to have it, some SENCOs really struggle to get the money for it because it will be funded um, as part of the MPQ programme that we see um, you know, already established. What I would say is that I think the, the DfE need to work very closely with the providers of the 
Nasenko Award to try and make sure that that national professional qualification is of the, the highest standard to ensure that our Senkos are getting that training that they really need. Um, they, they're, they're looking at um, commissioning some analysis to better understand what support children and young people send need from the health workforce. Um, because we are seeing much or many more children coming in with very complex needs, uh, we are you know, using health a lot more. And one of the things that um, you know, I know and as a chair of government at a special school is a, a significant amount of education budget is going on health. And I think the, the DFE need to better understand exactly what support um, you know, our health professionals can give to us in schools. Those people who have heard me speak before, you know that I, I say we need a 21st century workforce to support our 21st century children. And young people. And I believe that that means that we've got to have a workforce. It's not just teachers and teaching assistants, but it is health professionals, it is mentors and counsellors and people that can really support the needs of our young people today. Um, I've just put improved mainstream provision because it, that's quite, uh, there's quite a lot in there, but that's all about mainstream schools becoming more inclusive and, um, you know, being made, if you like, to take pupils that have got SEN. So if you, if a child, the parent has chosen a mainstream school and it is named in the plan, then they have to, you know, you have to take them. Um, and it's, it, it, the, it, what you do to, to say no almost has got to be tightened up. Um, so that's, that means that our mainstream provision will be able to meet needs. Sitting alongside that, I believe, is an awful big training issue, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, they've already announced, the government have already announced they're funding more than 10,000 additional respite places because that's been an issue for families over lockdown. They haven't been able to get that respite. Um, invest 2.6 million over the next three years in specialist settings and alternative provision. So making sure that we have got enough specialist places for our more complex young people, but also putting more money into the, the alternative provisions that we've got. Uh, the next one is really coming from the white paper, and it's about every school by 2030 being taught in a family of schools, i.e. being part of a trust. So that is one of the alignments, if you like, with the white paper. Um, and, and it's very clear that that includes all special schools and special schools can make the decision about whether they want to go into a all special trust or would they be better off in a um, a trust that's got different um, phases of school within it, and then they can support each other as we go forward. That's being left to individual schools. And then um, also uh, we, we know that there's £18 million over the next three years to build capacity in the supportive internship programme. That's been really successful for our older uh, youngsters, uh, but again, not enough uh, places and not enough investment in that. So chapter four is all about alternative provision. And I think that we've got to really get to understand, and I don't think this document really does that, is what do we mean by alternative provision? Um, so I think the first thing is to really understand, are we talking about alternative provision being short term um, and, and, you know, open, um, revolving door? So young people go in, they come out. Um, whereas at the moment, quite a lot of AP provision is where 
youngsters that have been excluded end up and they don't come out the other side. So there's, I think there's got to be a much clearer um, mesh, if you like, between mainstream and alternative provision and what their role will be going forward. But the DfE see that alternative provision needs to be an integral part of any local SEND system. One of the issues for alternative provisions is funding because they often only get funded for the number of students they've got in, in the provision at any one time. This is actually proposing that they have a three-year um, sort of uh, rolling budget um, and, and based on, you know, sort of places in the same way that special schools are funded. But that also then means that they can staff appropriately and they are ready when they do get that influx. You don't have to wait because they've got a staff and they've got to go out and find specialists, et cetera. So that if that, you know, that that would make those alternative provisions much more um, uh, accessible for um, our students. Um, it's also about um, having alternative, alternative provisions attached to strong multi-academy trust. So again, that's going back to the white paper and all schools being part of, um, you know, that, that family of schools, if you like. Also, because data, the data around um, performance in alternative provisions is, is not brilliant. Uh, they're looking at developing bespoke performance framework for alternative provision. Um, they're also looking at um, oversight and transparency of pupil movements. So again, much clearer about when a youngster moves into alternative provision and when they move out again. And just to say, you know, it, within that particular sector, some of our sort of hospital health education providers are alternative provisions, and some of them are seen as sort of specialist settings. So I think there's got to be a bit of a, a sort of understanding of what, what is an alternative provision nationally. And I think that's something that we need to put into um, our response that it doesn't really describe that very clearly. And I think that's something we, we really need to understand. The other bit that I am really, really pleased about is that the DFE, and actually they're going to do that supposedly this term, is launch a call for evidence on the use of unregistered provision. Because all we know that across the country, there are some really good providers providing um, you know, equine therapy, providing farm animal um, husbandry, um, but they're not registered. And they may be really, really good, but actually, you know, there's a lot of issues around that in terms of safeguarding and, you know, what the youngsters get out of it and what's the impact of it. So I'm not saying we should get rid of them. We just need to make sure that anybody that's actually supporting our children and young people is registered and, um, you know, we are able to know that as a school. So Chapter 5 is all about system roles, accountabilities and funding reform. So, again... Delivering clarity in roles and responsibilities, that's everything from what's the DfE's job, what's the local authority job, what's the school job, what's the health uh, um, department. Yeah, all of those things will, will be part of that clarity. Um, the Department of Education are setting up some new regions group uh, or new regions groups. Um, I'm not, again, the, the, the green paper doesn't really explain what those are going to be doing, but um, you know, useful if we want to do some of that uh, commissioning at a reasonable level. Now, integrated care boards are what's replacing our CCGs. So at the moment, we've got clinical commissioning groups. They are being replaced by integrated care boards, and they obviously are going to have a key role to pay, play. So the DfE want, want to provide statutory guidance to those in terms of what they are meant to deliver 
to support the health of um, our children. Um, in, introduce new inclusion dashboards, um, which which means you know schools the, the tracking, if you like, of SEN across the country will be more robust. Um, the the next big one, I suppose, is to introduce a new national framework price tariffs for funding. Now, there's part of me that thinks, wow, that's going to be great because it means that whatever local authority you're in, wherever you are in the country, there will be this national framework, if you like. So you have got, you've got a child who's got X, Y, and Z. They fit into band D. Therefore, they will get £10,000 in addition to the normal school. I don't think it will be as simple as that. And I think that it will take an awful lot of work to get that right. I think we've got issues around certain parts of the country are far more expensive than others. So, you know, for instance, in London, you're paying teachers more. And so I think there's got to be a lot of work that sits around that. And there needs to be, in my opinion, um, some sort of local flexibility in terms of how we provide locally for some of our very complex uh, youngsters. The other thing that I think that needs to be is a framework that sits right across all settings. So it's not just a framework for mainstream and then there's a separate framework for special. I think it needs to be a national framework across all sectors. And if you are a really inclusive school and you are taking a youngster who's got very complex needs, who you know may well be in a special school in another local authority, you actually need the funding that they would get in special in mainstream. So that framework needs to go right across um, all, all sectors. And then there is a new um, updated local area send inspection framework that will be in operation from September 2023, I think it is. So the OSED CQC are currently finishing off what they started in 2016. As I say, I think there's about 15 local areas still to do. And then they will introduce a new framework um, by which they will start inspecting local areas again. And then Chapter 6 really just sums it all up, I suppose. Um, it's, it's about how do, how do we stabilise the SEND system? And there's a lot of money going into things like family hubs, which has come out of the white paper, um, the, the safety valve programme and delivering better value programme. Again, lots of things around um, SEN. Um, call me cynical, but I would say every every child matters and sure start come to mind in terms of, you know, uh, those family centres, etc. Um, and then it, it is just about then delivering the programme that is set out within this, um, uh, you know, document. Once it's been through the consultation, there will be an, a, a, a send an alternative provision deli delivery plan. I think we'll start talking about send up as opposed to send, because I think it'll be send alternative provision. And, um, you know, the DFE will have a, a national send delivery board to make sure that all that is happening. So that's a really quick whistle stop to and through uh, those 100 plus paces. Um, for me, next steps are obviously join in with the conversation, join in with the questions um, and, you know, please respond. As I say, you don't have to answer all 21 questions. If you feel very, very strongly just about the Senko Award, just answer that question. If you feel very, very strongly about all schools being part of a trust, answer that particular question. 
Um, you know, choose, you choose what you want. If you can't do all 21, then just choose the ones you want. Okay, so thank you all very much. I'm going to hand back over to... Uh... <laughs> Lost my way now. Lost the plot. <laughs> Dale. Sorry about that. Went, went completely out of my head. Uh, I'm going to hand back to Dale and we're going to start some chat. Well, hopefully, I'm hoping the audio is looking good and sounding good and we can continue this. Otherwise, we'd have to go on hold and go for plan C. So while Lorraine's been delivering that speech, which I've luckily read through beforehand, I just spent the last five minutes running around to work out why the audio wasn't working and finding a failure in the system and so on. But anyway, enough of that. So the green paper. So we've talked for years about the old send review and what should have been in there. Yep. Is this send review, is all of what they're promising, is it not just what should have been in there in 2014 initially that they chickened out of, but with a load of marketing? Uh, well, yes, probably. <laughs> I think that, yes, you probably, I think there's a lot in there that probably was in the 2011 document that got cut out. Yeah. Um, I think there's things that aren't in there that should be in there, or there's not enough information, if you like. I am concerned that sitting underneath all of this is funding. And one of the reasons why I think it was so delayed was because the Treasury was saying we, you can't have the money that we would have wanted to actually really embed some of the reforms we want. Um, I, I think, yes, it does support parents more and parents and families, which is what the, the last one did. However, I, you know, I'll, We've got to wait and see because how it's actually delivered is, is going to be what tells us how good it is. A lot, lots of bits. They kind of say this whole alternative provision system, a complete change, yet they don't really give us any information. It's almost like they've had an idea and they're asking us, what do you think? If you like it, we'll work out how we're going to do it. Otherwise, we're not. Um, and I found the whole idea of um, alternative provision sitting there waiting for students being fully it, that kind of doesn't make sense to me I, I think I think what they've realized is that we've got some fabulous alternative provisions across the country some really really good provisions that have been you know filling a gap really but without the funding and without um, the real understanding of, of when does a youngster go to an alternative provision so what that has meant in my uh, opinion, is that then those youngsters have gone to specialist provision when actually with a bit of support and a bit of intervention and a bit of whatever they get in alternative provision, they could have got back into mainstream. So I think that's where the government are coming from, that we've got these really good settings, we've got this really good system, but at the moment there's no consistency. So I, And I think the, the thing that will ma make it more consistent although expensive in the in the short term, is to say, okay, like a special school, you've got 20 places, we will pay you this for the next three years, so therefore you can provide. Now, there will be probably months when there's 20 youngsters in there, there may be another month when there's only 10. But actually, in real terms, there are some specialist settings like that. Yeah, yeah most are, are full and imploding at the moment and taking more, but there are some whereby they're not always full because of the, the nature of the turnaround. If they are going to work, however, they've got to have the right staff and they can't be, if you like, you get to July, well, June, 
And local authorities are saying we've got 10 youngsters that we're going to need um, alternative provision for the first term. And the alternative provision has actually not got any staff for September because they weren't expecting anybody to come in. Yep. So therefore, you've then got to go and recruit. You've got to do all the safeguarding, you know, all of that. And it's October, November before you've actually got the staff in, which means those youngsters are then not in school because they're meant to be in order. So I think it will reduce all of that, but it will mean more cost at the beginning. Yeah. But the hope is, obviously, that it, it will be short term and they will be back into their mainstream setting, where at the moment what I think is happening, that revolving door has got locked. And, you know, because many of the youngsters that are going in alternative provision are not coming out the other end or until after, you know, the end of a key stage. and so. We, that, that's then blocking places for those youngsters that genuinely need that very short turnaround. Uh, so alternatively, most of the time it should be short term, which one, what I, one of the things, again, reading between the lines because it's not said much, is in theory, if I'm as school going to send a child to that auto provision, that child is going to come back to me. It's not a case of we, we can get rid of them. They're likely to come back, which, which, that, which I think overall has to make it more inclusive. It's almost you, you can go there, Hopefully, you get some more information on how to support them. Hopefully, they'll hopefully, but the fact yeah. they're coming back, I think, is a good thing. And that that's the way that I see alternative provision working. I know that's not how they all work. I know in some cases they are, per, you know, they're like a specialist provision, but I see that alternative provision being short term, whether it be a term or half, whatever it is in terms of the needs of the youngster. But at some point, there is some reintegration, either back into the school they came from or maybe back into another school, um, you know, to give them a second chance almost. Um, but at the moment, that revolving door is is locked because it, the whole system's a bit tied up. Um, but I do, I, you know, I think that what the, this, the document doesn't do is really explain what alternative provision should be. And I think that's something that we, we, we need to get them to really um, decide, if you like. I think we need, we need a lot more information in most of this document yes. for us to really concretely yeah. say what we like or don't yeah. like. Because you're either going to go at everything. And I'm quite an optimistic person. I read it. Well, this is going to be good. But then someone whose uh, child is in the system or yeah. somebody's in a school going through it all might just see the negative. And you need more detail to work out how it's going to go. But yeah. for me... I think one SEND system across the whole country in terms of the whole EHCP application. Yeah, I don't, I've just re realised, sorry, Dale, I didn't mention that about oh. there being. <laughs> How could you not? One of the things I was, I loved. Sorry. One of the, yes, yeah, sorry. One of the things that I didn't just mention was that there is going to be a national pro forma for an EHCP and it will be digitised. That does so, mean Gary, Gary Freeman. I know you're listening and watching, you're in the chat already. <laughs> Hopefully they'll do what they're told and then they'll follow. And you won't have to point out all the ones which aren't because it's one system. And I think for every person who is trying to support families and schools who can literally say, this is how you fill out the form. This is the important thing for box three. This is the important thing for box four. Five. That is going to make everyone's life so much easier. Well, it will. I mean, it's, um, to be fair, back in 2011, it was one of the things that Nathan was saying right from the start, we need one EHCP pro forma. 
Unfortunately, the government wanted local authorities to have autonomy. So they said what should be in each section, but how it's set out or, you know. So again, for schools that sit on borders or special schools that may take from, I don't know, five, six, seven local authorities, which often they do, it's going to be an absolute marvel. The, The downside, of course, will be it took five years to transfer statements to plans. So we have to remember that if it is going to a a standard format, we've got to go through that process again. Um, But at least we will go from an EHCP to an EHCP. So, you know, it shouldn't be too difficult. It shouldn't take the same amount of time that it did from statement to plans. Um, But, yes. You're you're saying that, (laughs) but we are eight years on from the code of practice coming in and the local authority inspections are going on and Mm -hmm. people are still going, you still haven't implemented the guidance from 2014. Now, it might be because the local authorities are struggling with it all and they're trying to find out what is the answer. And you might find by standardising this across the board, which is giving every local authority a script and a plan to work through, it might speed up this transition process. And and one hopes it does, especially digitising it, because it means everything then can come in electronically. Yeah. You know, people will have access. It won't be open to everybody. But, you know, the paediatrician can just post straight into that digitised system or a parent can post into it. So that should speed it up. The other thing that they have said is that they are looking at um, the turnaround from annual review because annual reviews have become a real big issue, especially over the last two years. And there was a massive um, court case a few weeks ago where the, the local authority had not turned the annual review around fast enough and that youngster had missed out on, you know, X amount of things. And nearly every Senko I talk to at the moment, they are often doing an annual review based on the annual review the year before that has not been amended. Yes. Purely because the, the local authority have not amended or even said, we don't agree, it's staying as it is. They don't actually comment on it. So <clears throat> I think that will also be a really positive... Um, I mean, at the moment, it's it's meant to be four weeks. So, and, and maybe that is too quick. I mean, maybe that's, you know, that's people just go into panic mode and don't get it. So maybe that needs to be elongated, but there then needs to be some power that says, and if you don't do it in that time, then X will happen. And I think, in fact, we've got, if we go to a digitised system and you can only have a timeline of everything that's going on, you can see that around, it goes to that person, they've got four weeks, we're at six weeks, it's quite clear where that's facing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that might be something which goes into that inclusion dashboard yeah. and things like that. Yeah, and I do think that, that you know, we have got some really good local authorities in this country. I know that, you know, on social media and all the rest, of it, we pick up on those that are not doing what they should do. There are some really good ones and, and those... Or, um, local authorities that have got through their Ofsted CQC and they've had very positive um, uh, reports, we should be using them. We should be finding out why they can do it and somewhere else can't and using that good practice. So not, you know, if a local authority genuinely is struggling and really finding it difficult to do what they need to do, why is it because, like you said, they've got staff that actually don't know what they don't know? And so, therefore, they're just, you know, pulling out the wind in terms of what, what needs to, to happen. Um, so I think there's there's got to be a, a better system and, you know, 
Gary, if you're listening, you'll be grateful for this, whereby everybody, and I mean everybody that's in concern, gets good legal training yeah. because I think there is law that sits behind all of this and we need to know, understand that. But at the same time, we also need to make sure that those people that are at the heart of it at local authority level have an understanding of what the system is. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's not in there, but it, it, it's something we can say in the consultation. There's a couple of articles I've read recently. One was uh, from the local government association thing, talk about elbowy parents, yep. middle and all that, middle class. They're the only ones going to exit. It's like, no, you're missing, completely missing the point. Um, and, um, and I think there's a local, uh, local, Kent local authority had an article complaining about elbowy type parents winning tribunals. It's not fair and all this. Blah, and it's, you know, they're just upholding the law. Yeah. Um, but I think this whole nationalised SEND should mean for most people they will get more support. There are going to be some children who are going to lose out because we are averaging it out. But for the lot of children, by the sounds of it, or again, my optimisticness is meaning that dyslexia will be recognised in a lot more authorities than it currently is. Other things will be recognised. There'll be a more standardised approach and lots of things which will mean more children are getting that support. Um, if we then move on to the uh, the government will set the price for various uh, placements, um, that on one hand is very sensible, but um, on the other hand, what all of this um, standardising can mean is you only have options A to Z. You don't have a A plus B plus F plus G plus H. That's my concern with this system is you might end up with just a small set of standardised options um, which don't suit all pupils. And I totally agree with you. And that's why I think that there needs to be some localised um, control, support, whatever you want to call it. So, yes, we've got that national framework, but a local authority can choose to up or down, if you like, uh, within that locality if there's a particular need for a bespoke, if you like, placement, because not everybody's going to fit. I mean, you're not, unless you've got like 9,000 million bands, not every youngster's going to fit because they're all individual. But I think it is, it, you know, you could do some in the way that we do now, but I think that there's got to be some sort of lo localised um so flexibility, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you, Dale. Localised flexibility. But obviously that would have to come out of their high-needs budget. So, you know, it's it, at the end of the day, it comes back to money. And if there's enough money in the system, then we should be able to do what we need to do. Um, but my, I suppose my concern is that what they're trying, at the moment, how I read it is there is no more money coming to the system what they're trying to do is reduce the foot, the funding that's going to say tribunal or to out of county placements, and then that then comes back into local authorities to do what they need to do, and that's a bit naive really because if parents parents have the right to go to tribunal, they'll go to mediation, they'll tick a box, they they may not listen to anything they're told, and they'll still go to tribunal, and I think you know part of part of all of this is there, need, there does need to be, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to be controversial now, but I, I, I know what I'm trying to say. We've just got to be careful that the EHCP just doesn't become the golden ticket. In other words, that if, if a mainstream school is providing everything it can provide, 
and meeting the needs of that youngster, then there shouldn't be a need to go for an EHC needs assessment. Yes. And I'm not saying we should reduce how many EHCPs we've got at all, but I do think we just need to go backwards a bit. I think parents now, because they don't feel they're getting what they should be getting from mainstream, are going down the route of EHC needs assessment. And if you're, I, I'll be honest, if you're a parent, well, if, if you're a parent, you've got a child with special needs, you visit a school, a mainstream school, and that mainstream school actually says to you, I don't think we're going to be able to meet your child's needs. As a parent, you're not going to take them there. You are going to say, okay, we'll go somewhere else or we'll go for an EHC. And that's got to stop. I mean, you know, there, there is very, very few children that a mainstream school cannot deal with. I accept, you know, inclusion for me is not just about a place. It's about a quality of opportunity for all youngsters. And, you know, we can't um, have every single mainstream school fitted out with a hoist in every room, with changing rooms. You know, I, I go into schools, old Victorian buildings, you know, there's no lift. There's no nowhere to change a child that needs personal care. So I do fully understand that's not what we're, we're aiming for. But there are a lot of youngsters that we could meet need in mainstream as long as we get the funding and we've got the well-trained staff. And those are the two things, really. Yes. Um, you know, so I think that if we can get better at that, then the rest will fall in place. I always find in these conversations I can go on so many segues of different mm. things and lose a couple of days just talking through this. Yeah. But I'm trying not to because I can see questions are coming in. And I will, we will get to the, the next bit I want to just talk about is NPQ versus Naysenko. Okay. <laughs> there's, think, there's a lot of concern that it's going to devalue that yeah, qualification. And, and I think, um, and let it could do, let's put it like that. The MPQ has to be the right qualification. I think that the Nasenko Award has been, you know, highly supportive because it's master's level, it's raised that awareness, um, and it's given, if you like, Senko's that bit more um clout, I suppose I'd call it, in terms of, you know, what they get. However, I do think that if we want to bring people in line in terms of that trajectory of senior leadership, then actually having the MPQ would be, is, it would be the right route to go. But I would, I would say that, you know, when they're looking at what that contains, talk to the providers of the Nasenko to see, you know, what that, that training looks like. Um, the other thing that I do think is a positive on the MPQ, if it stays the same, is that MPQs are free. And so, therefore, if you've got an aspiring Senko who's sitting in a school thinking, I don't really want to be a deputy yet or don't want to be an assistant, I'd really like to be a Senko, um, but actually I've got no training in that, they actually could go forward to do the MPQ Senko at no cost to the school. And then if they leave and go and be a Senko somewhere else, Yes, you, you know, a good member of staff is going, but you haven't invested money in them to do the Nisenko Award, which is what schools are doing at the moment. So I think there's, there's a quid pro quo there. Um, but I do, I do like the idea that there will be that trajectory of MPQs because lots of Senkos say to me, I don't want to be an assistant head or a deputy head, but I'd like to be on leadership as a Senko. Yes. And I'm hoping that that MPQ will be equal to a senior leader MPQ, so not a head teacher, but the senior leader. And hopefully that then will drive Senko's being on senior leadership. 
because although it's still only a recommendation in the Green Paper, it is it is mentioned that Senko should be on senior leadership. They should have the time and resource to do the job. I'd like it to be a must, and I will ask for it to be a must, but at the you moment it's... Please ask for it yeah, to be a must. Yeah, it's a must, not a should. Um, but that MPQ might just help us to give them that bit extra status in terms of sitting on leadership, but without being on leadership, if that makes sense. I think some of the feedback I've heard from Naysenko is, and he said it is an academic qualification, it's a master's level, there's research, there's lots of writing. And I see on the uh, Senko group on Facebook and the Sensible Senko group on Facebook, lots of people talking about their dissertations and all that sort of stuff. And some people have said that it doesn't actually prepare them for actually doing the role. And, and I think that's why I, my, I always um, say to Senkos, you know, have a year doing the Senko role and then do your Senko course because then you've got a bit of, you know, you know what it's all about and you're doing that in the middle, if you like, because you have to do it within three years. Um, but I think that Senkos are incredibly busy. They are, I mean, you know, it's a lonely life. They're often the only one in the school. If you're in a large secondary, you might have an assistant. And... I think on top of that, doing, um, you know, a master's level qualification for some might be the straw that broke the camel's back, if that's the right terminology. So I think that although that's great and it does give them that kudos and actually many Senkos then go on and complete their master's doing other things, which again is fabulous. I think that for those Senkos that are put off by becoming a Senko because they've got to do that, this, the MPQ might just give us a few more Senkos that we're missing out on at the moment. So I can see pluses and minuses to both, but if it's done right, I think it's probably a good way forward. Well, the last thing I want to discuss is I want to touch on the white paper. Because yeah. this, we are discussing the green paper, and when they came out, they said you've got to read them both together and things like that. So a couple of points in, in um, the 90% the reaching expected standards and yet the funding not there. So that is a whole level of not going to happen. Um, I, but what if I squint my eyes and try and work out what that means is I think what I read from that, and it might have just the way they've chosen to do it is wrong, is they're trying to be aspirational for pupils with SEND. That's what I'm reading from that is you've got to be aspirational. You've got to be striving towards that. Um, but the bit when I look through the white paper and the green paper, I looked for spoken language, I looked for communication skills, I looked for all those sorts of things. And there wasn't much in there. There was a talk about the importance of early language skills in early years, and then it's assumed that everyone has that. And it doesn't sort of question the pupil's ability in those areas to be able to access the education. But yet the, I think the Speech and Language Society, might be the Royal Speech and Language Society, did a whole thing looking at prisons in a similar way. The government, this they mentioned in here, but they talk about the lack of communication skills, the lack of speech and language skills, the SMH, and all that impact. And it's not about getting the English and maths. It's actually just being able to understand what someone's speaking to you about, the listening, the understanding. And if they don't have these skills, it doesn't matter how much tutoring you're doing in English and maths, it's not really going to help if you haven't got those core skills developed first. Absolutely. So I think, first of all, we have to consider the measure. <laughs> so the measure is SATs at the moment at the end of Key Stage 2. I think it's interesting that although they said um, 
when they bought baseline in that if the baseline was successful by this year they would have scrapped key stage one sats but they haven't yet so i think that's that's a uh, you know a marker i think that if 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 everything is being judged on sats i think that that's not helpful because there are youngsters who have got sen who actually are making superb progress but they may not be accessing sats or not able to reach national expected and who says what's national expected anyway yeah. you know if we are looking at preparation for adulthood then you know i would say and this is just a very personal opinion anybody who's seen me heard me speak will know you know why are we testing out how well our children can write because most of our youngsters will never write in adulthood they will use technology yeah. So, you know, there's, there's all those sort of issues, really. Why are we still doing, you know, paper-based tests? Um, I, I know the reason. It's because connectivity in this country is poor and so not everybody would get connected at the same time. But they but, do it in Wales. Absolutely, yes. So, anyway, that's off the subject. Um, <laughs> I think that 90% is really, really aspirational. Um, and I think you're right. I think it will push schools for those um, sort of higher ability youngsters that have got SEN. But if we if we consider that at the moment the 16% of children in this country that have got SEN on either support or EHCP, now I'm not, you know, it's possible that 6% of those might get to nationally expected, maybe even more. But that 90% is saying that only 10% won't. And I'm, I, I'm not sure about that at all. I, I think that 90% is just a bit too high. But the trouble is, with all of these things, we could have another government by then. You know, it's 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 all relative in a sense, isn't it? To, you know, yes, we need to push. Yes, we need to make sure that we've got the highest expectations for some of our youngsters. But I'm not convinced that SATS is the answer in the same way that, you know, a GCSE and the data for that is that I can't remember what the percentages are, but a huge increase. You know, if you're a youngster and you're in year 10, you know, and, and you're, you've got some learning difficult disabilities, you may well be able to do four GCSEs well yep. over that two years, but no, you've got to do eight. Yep. So what happens is you fail all eight instead of getting, you know, medium level results in four and then being able to do another four afterwards. So the, 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 the actual system to me, the, the accountability system, is against everything that's written in the white paper and the green paper. Yeah. So I think um, I asked my daughter, my daughter's in year 11, and I said, oh, she went, and it was, I, I've used it in my blog on the B-Squared website, under the resources blogs, you'll find my, blo my blog on all of this. And she just said this, are they really trying to improve or are they, are they, like, are they just trying to look like they are? And... <laughs> You've got a question, what is the government's overall aims? And it is to do better in PISA scores. Not about any of the people underneath. We want to do better in the PISA scores so we look better as a country. And you look at various things and it's just pushing towards that and this whole thing. We're not really underneath. We're not trying to work out what's best for children. You mentioned about doing eight GCSEs when you could have done four. And there are children who might get a one or a two at GCSE but could do much better and a much more useful skill set is functional skills, but they're being pushed to the GCSEs because that's what they've got to do. And that's what they're accountable for. So all, a lot of those functional skills that schools used to do really, really well no longer count in the accountability measures, so they've stopped doing them. Yeah. 
Um, and and so, you know, that, that system is not working. But I, I think one of the issues that we've got here, and going back to what you've just said, is it's government control. So the government want to be in control of the education system yeah. and they don't really understand the children, the young people that we've got in our schools no. is what I, I really don't think they have that understanding, especially in some of our more challenging, disadvantaged areas, the after effects of COVID, uh, you know, all of that. And, and you know, <clears throat> we've still got two or three years of children who are sitting at home at the moment, so preschool, who have missed out on the two-year check, they've missed out on health visitors, they've missed out on going to early years settings, they're not in school yet. Yeah. And we are going to see those coming into our nurseries and our reception over the next three years, and Senkos are going to be going... I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> their literacy skills, their language skills, their social skills. So, you know, this isn't, we're, we're on a journey at the moment. And I'm, the, the, these are always going to be called the COVID cohorts. And, and they will, you know, there will be youngsters that have been disadvantaged by that. Children coming in this year, next year, are the ones who are in seven years' time are supposed to be this 20 to 30 yeah. cohort hitting this yeah. 90%, which is kind of ridiculous. Ridiculous. Um, <laughs> One of the things I read, I remember when the white paper was released, I tried to read everything and it sent me off in various other documents. So I, I searched for, I, I like doing, I searched for the term reasonable adjustment. Yeah. It didn't appear anywhere. Didn't appear anywhere. No. I went on a document journey around yeah. the internet trying to find, oh, go look at this document. Nope, not in there. And there's one place. I thought, I don't like that. I didn't like the use of strong in the behavior policy. Um, there's just lots of things I didn't like. But one of the things when I, I think the MP or someone, whoever it was, was part of the talk was, when I visit schools, and I always know that they cherry pick the schools, they cherry pick the ones with the right head teacher or the right thing. I would like them to go to some proofs, some alternative provisions to some special schools where they're struggling. I'd like them to go to um, children who are, I'm not going to say school refusers, that's a choice thing, school avoiders school phobias, all those sorts of things. Go talk to them. Find out what it is they need. I think that as a whole section isn't being listened to. Their, their voices aren't being heard. Um, and it is important that all of those people do contribute to. And I, I personally don't think specialist provision is in there enough. Yep. It's very much um, alternative provision and mainstream schools. There's not a lot around specialist provision and it, it almost to me and I've said this for many years the government talk about all children but actually they don't talk about all children they talk about you know the 95 percent let's say they don't talk about the five percent that don't fit in the all I was, and, I was just about to say yeah. the all and the all yeah. they say all mean 90 percent we hear all we mean 100 percent absolutely and that's a very different thing I've, I've been to conferences where i've asked this and they've gone no and i'm like but it says all yeah well was the answer yeah and it, so it's very clear when they say all yeah they don't mean all they mean all as in mainstream yeah or all as in special but those that can do okay Yes. You know, they, they're not, and, and there's very little in here about complex PMLD, you know, real severe needs, those real complexities. Um, very, very little about special schools and, and what that what role they're going to play in all of this. So something else to sort of think about, really. 
So we're going to just have a very, very quick, literally like 30 second minute break while I skim through a load of the questions. But we'll be back in a second with the Q&A. Thank you very much, Dale. Hi, welcome back. I've just been reading some of these questions and some of them are very big, uh, not just in wordy, um, but <laughs> we could talk on some of these questions for a very long time. Um, and basically, um, talk about the focus. Is there enough focus on early years um, and being involved and included? Um, who will be responsible for paying for alternative provision? Because that's, again, one of those things we, we kind of covered is if they're sitting there un, unused, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so if it is, yeah, there's a load of questions around that, which we just don't have enough information on, do we? I mean, going back to early years, there is small amounts around early years. I don't think it's enough. I think we we really need to be investing in our early years. Um, there's there's something in there about the two year check that should be carried out by all early years providers for and the um, health check that should be provided by health visitors. They that that should be an absolute must. And I think if you've got children that are not in um, an early year setting, then there's, there's got to be a way that people get out into homes and do those checks because I think that's the way that we will find out <clears throat> and can start place planning for the future because at the moment there, there's not really any thought about, you know, we, we know that there will be a number of youngsters every year that are born with a disability. We know those youngsters. We then, if it's a two-year check, we start to see children that are starting to show signs that they're going to need additional support for whatever need they've got, then that's another bit of data that we can add. So by the time these youngsters are getting into school, we've at least got some sort of plan of what they're going to need going forward. I, I, some local authorities can do that. Some don't appear to be doing it. So it's all very reactive rather than proactive so I think getting those checks done is 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 vital, and I'm glad that that's that's reinforced in here. But again, funding is still not good for early years, um, and you know I've never understood why you know early years get almost diddly squat, and yet key stage four get you know double, even triple sometimes. Now somebody said to me the other day that's because exams cost a lot of money, um, you know, but that's. To me, that's not the answer because if we're investing in early years, we're investing in the future and we're speculating to accumulate, really. So, yes, I, I, it could be better. I think, don't mention early intervention. That's just obviously gone out the window these days. Oh. Um, right, so, so Deborah Roscoe from Pioneer Educational Trust is a really interesting question. I know the green paper is purely education, but she's talking about CAMS and the waiting list of three years for ASD and ADHD. Um, and if you talk about self-harm, CAMS won't see children unless they've actually tried suicide. Yeah. But I suppose that, because this is just education, we can't touch on that. Well, in, I mean, they are going to um, bring health and social care into it. They are, you know, going to work with these integrated boards, to, uh, which is the health side. Um, I know that where there are um, senior mental, not senior mental health, sorry, the... Um, the mental health uh, support teams, which are in, I think, something like 300 areas now, they know that they're working, but they tend to be very the areas of high deprivation, which doesn't help those schools that haven't got that. I think there's, you know, that it, it's it's about it is about money, and and you know, only 0.6 percent 
of the NHS budget goes on children and young people's mental health. And we know that that is just not enough, given where we are at this moment in time. The government have invested in the senior mental health lead training, so a third of schools have, have accessed that. And we're waiting to hear that they'll be funding again for another year. Um, but that, that <clears throat> where the, the issue is, of course, which is what the, the, the person that set the question is, schools are doing everything they can in terms of triage and signpost and everything else, but there's not the next step. And, and, you know, I, I know in some local areas, it's, it's, they've had to have tried to take their own life three times before they'll be seen by cams, which is just terrible. I think, I think it's why some Senkos get a lot of, I'm going to say abuse, <laughs> because they, they are often, I, I, I sometimes refer to them, it sounds wrong, as a receptionist. You go to them, or they're like a librarian, oh, that's down here, and you can't find it, so you come back and you have a go at that person you can access. So when that poor Senko is signposting, oh, go to them, oh, that's them, and then again, they're then trying to support that person on top of what they're actually trying yeah. to do. And, and I think that's that's the problem. And, and one of the things that I do think we're our own worst enemy because we we are, you know, we're working with children and young people and we care about them. So we go over and above probably what we're meant to do. And therefore then the powers that be don't actually see where the gaps are. Yes. Because in as schools, we are always trying to fill those gaps. And we'll go, we'll do everything we possibly can for these youngsters. Um, and sometimes that's at our detriment almost, because you know, the government then just think everything's okay. Whereas if we suddenly had, you know, attendance went down to 50%, and the reason why all those youngsters were not in school was because of their mental health, something might get done. But schools will do everything to keep that attendance up and keep those youngsters in school. And, and that's that's the issue, really. We're all, we're all too good at it yes. <laughs> because we care. You do. I, I always find with teachers, you are literally all you teachers. Okay, not all, most, because sometimes you're filling in for those who don't. Yeah. But you will not let the children suffer. No. You will put them before you. Yeah. Um, and even when the government's not you reach into your own pocket, it yeah. is phenomenal. And you will find any solution you possibly can. Yeah. And the other the other concern I've got just going back to that is that we we are finding that the Senko, of which it is a massive role anyway, is now the senior mental health lead. And they're also the designated safeguarding lead. And those are three massive jobs, which if you're teaching even half time is almost impossible. Yes. And you're getting no supervision and no support. And that is a massive thing for me, is yeah. that, you know, we are expecting, you know, this one person or maybe two people to be delivering all of that. And if you're in an area of high disadvantage or you've got a lot of lack children or pupil premium children, that, you know, is, is just exponentially more work. Um, and, and, you know, if teachers then are then, as you say, go to missus, go to me, <laughs> and not taking that responsibility themselves, and, and school leaders are expecting that to be the Senko, huge, huge issue, not going to be addressed by this paper, this green paper. I'm just going to use this moment to <coughs> mention the Virtual Send Conference 7th about importance of wellbeing for all. Uh, so, yeah, please check that out. We've got discount code I mentioned earlier. Um, and it is, it's about, you, you got, yeah, they, talk, they mentioned magnet schools, 
but you know there's magnet synco as well within that yeah. which everything just goes to them mm. um natasha from deptford green schools has asked do you have or is there a pro forma available for checking off-site provisions not that i know of i a local authority may have one um but i i don't know of of, of a national one no I'm, I'm assuming she means for um, unregistered APs. I'm assuming. No, I think it would just be a case of you doing your own safeguarding um, checks and, and making sure that all everything was covered. Yeah. So um, someone's asked James Wilton from East Silk. Um, I'd like to know how the DfE intend to invest in infrastructure of local authority schools and the time frame they've set. Uh, and then there is a whole thing about pay being increased, being below inflation, and some people not being able to go to work, yet they are shaping the future generation. That really does not make any sense. No, and I would totally agree. I think, again, it's, you know, the expectations on teachers is phenomenal. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's not being recompensed in terms of finance. And as you, you said earlier, many of our teachers are actually using their own pockets to buy, you know, necessary things that, and, and schools just haven't got the funding. They are, you know, some schools just are really struggling with funding at the moment. Um, and although the government keeps saying we've put this much in and that much in, it obviously isn't getting through to schools or, you know, not whatever. I think one of the things that um, <clears throat> if, if if you're a maintained school at the moment, you've obviously got to start thinking about academisation. If that's, if that's you know, if the, if the 2030 date is, is only eight years away, isn't it? Um, and, and part of that might be about you become you're out of the local authority then, so it's not the local authority's job. I think what we will see is over the next eight years, <clears throat> local authorities will decline even more in terms of what support they can give schools. Not so much around SEN because they will still be the provider, but I think around you know other aspects of education, um, unless it is statutory. Yes. I think that you, know, you will find, um, I mean, there are local authorities now who are just saying, you know, we cannot support our maintained schools any longer no. because we haven't got enough schools with us. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that drive to academisation will actually remove, if you like, uh, the local authority duties to do things to get schools ready for all of this. I think it will become a, an academy issue as opposed to a local authority issue. I think they'll literally, as people, maybe as people leave local authorities, they won't get replaced. That no. would be the first thing, and then there'll be redundancies. Yeah, because and if it becomes there. an accessibility issue, you see, which at the moment the local authority would be supportive of in a maintained school, that then becomes the responsibility of the academy, whether you're a single school academy or a, a trust. And so, therefore, that pushes the ownership into the academy as opposed to the local authority. Yeah. And just on that pay thing, it's the, the things the school's white paper offers is 90%. For each child who's further behind, that's insanely more effort required to get them to the expected standard. So you've got all this effort in, and their answer is, well, we're giving you some free CPD, but we're not going to cover your lot. You, co you cover it, your um, cover, probably. Uh, and we've got all this uh, from Loke Academy. We've got all this. That's all you need. No, it, the biggest thing they need is time. Yeah is the biggest thing and time is money so if they could increase teachers non-contact to 20 percent, if they could do things like that if they could get more staff in schools then schools have a chance of coping with this but and and, and the training you know <clears throat> teaching is the only profession that does not expect its professionals to do 
so many hours of professional development a year. So if you're a doctor, if you're a dentist, if you're a lawyer, you have to sign to say, I have done 35 hours of professional development as part of my performance review, if you like. We don't have that. So some teachers will do lots and they'll come on, you know, they'll do Sendcast and they'll do virtual, you know, as part of that. But others may not do any at all apart from the five days that they get, um, you know. And again, we've got those five training days. Lots of schools now have, have made those so that they do twilights instead, which is great. And that gives teachers that bit extra time. But what can you do in a twilight that's really effective? when everybody's been at work all day. Yes. I, I think, again, if you're using the virtual SEND conference, um, yeah. you, you can have these 45-minute sessions. Yeah. And why be in school? Why not sit there and say, at some point in the next week, we won't have an after-school support session. Go home early. Yeah. But go watch this session. Go watch that session from there. Go yeah. do that. Let's discuss it. Or, as a year group, sit together, three teachers together, and watch it and then discuss it. Yeah, and make it really quality. And and the other thing is with those, you know, the five baker days, as I think they were originally called, you know, you've got to do safeguarding every year. You know, if you manual handling, you've got medications, if you've got, you know, you've got all of that to do. Yeah. That actually, of those five days, you've probably only got two that can really be used for high-quality curriculum or supporting SEN or whatever. And it's not enough. No. You know, and it's always in school, you know, in a cold hall, usually, <laughs> straight after a winter holiday when the eating hasn't been on. I know I've stood there, you know, delivering training. You know, people out in the big wide world go to a nice hotel and they have lunch and, I, I, yeah, I, and <laughs> Some head teachers are really good. I've done that um, 3rd of January training. Yeah. 9 a.m. You walk in, no one wants to be there. And then the head teacher brings out bacon rolls. Yeah, but you still got to wear your coat. For... You still have to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Although I know schools are used to wearing coats at the moment because of ventilation. So, yes. new world. Um, so, I'm going to skip a couple of questions because we kind of covered them in the chat. Um, would it might be more appropriate to make that Senko as your assistant head teacher? Now, it's an interesting. I, I always thought that a Senko, and I assumed it's what it is intended, is a Senko as a role is the level of a senior leader. Not that. I will make them a senior leader and then we'll give them lots of other things. No, being the Senko is enough to make someone a senior leader. Um, and Senko is also one of the few roles where you have legal requirements to respond in certain days. If you get a bit of paperwork and on your desk on the 18th of July, you have to respond in the school holidays. Um, so I think, I mean, we're working when I worked on the Senko regs back in the mid-2000s, really, when I was at Nason, we were pushing heavily for the Senko to be a senior leadership role. There was a lot of pushback from secondary Senkos because they just wanted to be a Senko. They did not want all of the other stuff that went with being on senior leadership. And I got that. I understood that. I think, for me, it should be a senior leader role and they shouldn't be doing the other stuff. It's, It's a role that makes them a senior leader you know a lot a lot of our primary senkos are also assistant heads or deputies um and a lot of our secondary senkos are senkos not on leadership 
and and that's you know that's that's a difficulty. The other thing that we've 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 got is we've got some senkos who are paid on just main main scale. We've got some that get a TLR. We've got others that are on um, upper pay spine. And then we've got others that are paid on leadership, but they have to do lots of other things as well. as the, So there's no standardisation around that role of the Senko at all. And that would be helpful, yes. I think, because as you say, even, even if you're in a very small infant school where you are full class, full-time class based and, you know, you've still got to get that paperwork in for an EHC needs assessment in the days that, you know, the, the, the time frame that you've got. Um, or, you know, if you're chasing a paediatrician's report, you need time to be able to do that. I think the other thing that it does recognise in, in the green paper, and I will make sure that it should be a must, is admin time. Because I think too many Senkos are very expensive administrators. And, you know, 10 hours a week can make a massive, massive difference to a Senko's life having somebody that can make those phone calls, that can fill in the, the basic details on a form, that can, you know, just, just do the admin stuff that many Senkos are spending a lot of time doing. Definitely. So that will be a must when I write my response. They're <laughs> <laughs> um, talking, um, Carol Long has talked about how the um, new regional take responsibility through some new funding agreements. It's like, and what are these funding agreements? And no one knows. They'll probably be made public when it's too late to change anything. Yeah. Um, in the review, I mentioned create a list of schools that will be able to provide specific types of provision for mainstream schools. There'll be a basic expectation on the provision they have in their setting. There are effectively 152 approaches to SCND across England. What timescale do you think it will be before we look at the National SEN framework? I, I think the National SEN framework will be at least September 2025 because I think it's got to, it's got to go into the legislation. And, and <clears throat> I did ask the question of a, a DfE official a few weeks ago and said, will it be amendments to the Children and Families Act or will there be a new act? And he just said, that's a good question. <laughs> so I, thought, I was pleased that I'd asked the question. I wasn't really pleased with the answer, but that's the way it is. Because if it is a whole new act, that's very different to reviewing and revising some legislation that's already sitting there. So, yeah, I'm, I think we're looking at at least three, if not four years. I would say, um, although there's 152 of them, we could probably just count 90 of them very quickly as being not fit for purpose. <laughs> yeah, and, possibly. Uh, working out which three or four are the best and working. Yeah. I think we've them. got to use what we know is good as best practice, whether that's in a school, whether it's in an alternative provision, whether it's a local authority, because there is some brilliant practice out there and we need to be using that best practice to then start moving forward. Uh, Sarah-Jane Critchley, another guest on yeah. the Sencast, has asked... Hi, Sarah-Jane. <laughs> um, what are the legal teeth that will make the stakeholders in the system do what is agreed in reality? The legal teeth is it's written in legislation and then those people that then are enacting that are held to account. Now, that should be happening already. We have, yeah, we have very, very strong legislation it's written in the, the Act. It's written in the regulations. I mean, I know that the Code of Practice is statutory guidance, so it's not quite as legally bound as, as the regulations and, and the Act, but it's there. Everything about SEN is already underpinned by law. It's just about there's no accountability. 
And if you're thinking, you know, you're thinking about a local authority that's been inspected recently, eight years on from the, um, you know, from the reforms, and the first sentence in that report is, um, this local authority has been slow to develop reform. Eight years. You know, it's it's not good enough. It's and and that's the problem. Yes, our local authority here, eight years. <laughs> it, was, it was such a bad. It's like, oh god, dear. Um, and I thing was, you sit there and going, it's a local authority, but you're literally going eight years. So how many children have you failed over the last eight years? It's a scary number. Well, it's almost a whole generation, isn't it? Eight years when you think, you know, it's, a, it's a, definitely a primary and, and into secondary. Um, so Kenny has asked local inclusion plan to get agencies to work together. What learnings will they take from CCGs? Probably realistically none. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, again, if it, there are some local so local health boards that have been really, really good, really, really effective. So what we need to do is make sure that those CCGs are upheld, if you like, as being good models. Again, there's always that cynical view, isn't there, that we're we're moving away from CCGs to I whatever they are Gs, um, because it it almost it just moves the goalposts. Yeah, you know if if they're going to be better, that's great. But actually, are we just changing their name because we're kicking the can a bit further down the road? And there's always that sort of cynical view, really. So Gary Freeman's asked, do we need mandatory mediation? This will remove choice from families. I. I don't think we need mandatory mediation personally. I think it's there if, if any. Well, they still, I mean, they have to go through the process now, but they don't have to sit in front of a mediator, I suppose, is what we're saying. I'm not convinced that going to mediation will then stop tribunal. I think that, par- you know, those parents that know what they want, they will go to mediation to tick the box they don't have to listen to what the mediator says. They then just go to tribunal. So it may may solve a few, but I'm not convinced it will solve others. I think that for those parents, whether you want to call them that, what did you call them, elbow parents or whatever? It wasn't my name. No, whatever. It was a local but, governing. You know, those parents that really, really want a particular thing for their child will go the nth degree. I suppose those parents that maybe don't have those skills or that skill set to be able to do that, um, you know, it, it may mean that those children don't get as as far down that process. I don't know. I think <clears throat> it just seems to me that it's just making, there's no research that shows that if we put in uh, mandatory mediation, it will reduce the number of tribunals. And I think I'd want to see really that that sort of evidence, I suppose. But hopefully that national send system and all that hopefully should reduce all of that fighting. That's well, going on. I, I, I mean, that was exactly, to be fair, that's what the Green Paper in 2011 was meant to do because of the Brian, you know, Brian Lamb's report. It was meant to cut out all of that, you know, Telling telling fifteen different professionals about my child, you know that joined upness, and that that hasn't gone away. Parents still say to me, you know, I have to say the same thing over and over again each time I jump through the next hoop, and that's that. You know, <clears throat> and one of the it's all very well, you know, going back to the having um, standardised DHCPs and digitised, but then if health don't share their information or social care don't, it all falls apart. Got to be joined up. That's the thing I think with the EHC, that's what it scares me. The education, there's a lot in there which will help, but the social care and the health yeah. a lot also needs to change there. Yeah. And hopefully it will change. Yeah. 
Uh, Gary Freeman's asked for any new code of practice. Do we need a clear expectation that everyone in the system must use law in the first instance rather than the code? Because the latter is exclusively just guide advice and guidance. Issue currently is too many LAEs ignore law and quote the code instead. Absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, if you read the code properly and you use the musts, the musts are what's written really in law and shoulds are musts unless you're doing something better. Yes. So actually, all musts and shoulds are, are mandatory is how I read it. But you're right. They don't always no. read it like that. And so they look at the code and then they'll find some loophole that says we don't have to do it. You know, it's not mandatory. Well, you know, as I say, we need to make sure that anybody working in SEN, whether it's at local authority, whether it's health, whatever, understands the law. Because Quite it's embedded in law. Um, if you don't follow Gary Freeman on Twitter, he's often pointing out, he doesn't name them, which I'm kind of sad about, Gary. <laughs> um, but he's generally pointing out another local authority, another person not doing what is right. Um, it's, it's quite shocking and entertaining at the same yeah. time. I wish he would point names. It would be much more fun. Actually, <laughs> then, I, we can all point together and get things changed, personally, I believe. Um, Diane Garrett's asked, the send budget is not ring-fenced currently. Is this being changed? Not, not in the current review it is something that i am going to again put as a must i think that if we had notional sem budget ring fence like we have pupil premium um so you've got to be accountable and for it now i know that you know schools find ways of <clears throat> playing the system if that's the right word but at least the senco would know what's coming in on the notional budget and would be held accountable um, at the moment, too many schools, as far as I'm concerned, have their notional SEM budget. It's not ring-fenced. It goes into the budget. And if you question senior leaders, they will say to you, oh, but we've got a TA in every classroom. And I will go, that's fantastic. What's the impact? What's the outcome for children with SEM? That's what we need. We need to know that that money has having an impact on SEM pupils, maybe being used for other pupils as well. But what's the impact of it on children with SEN? And that's the bit that we haven't got to grips with. And maybe some of that, you know, new data collection might do that a bit more. But for me, that, that budget or at least some of that budget should be ring-fenced and known by the SENCO and the SENCO is responsible for it. I hope, I hope there's a value for money survey, I think it was a year or two ago, yeah. got released. And I think this has fed into all of this. Yeah. It is about actually some local authorities really don't have a clue how much they're spending. The value for money is shocking. And the next authority could be spending much better. It's completely uneven. And they're trying to standardize on that. Yeah. Which I think overall should be more positive, but it can always, as anything, be misused. There are some research things going on at the moment about, you know, how are local authorities using their high needs money and, and especially those local authorities that have got significant overspends, how have they got into that position um, and, and how can we make that better in the future? So there's, there's other things going on in the background as well. Uh, Siobhan uh, McCauley has seen some taught in a family of schools and has asked, is this another way of forcing through academisation of all schools? Um, my guess, I can't remember where it's from, is no. Um, Nottinghamshire do a whole family-based system, don't they? So you generally will have a family of schools and we work with a family of schools and there is a SENCO who leads all the other SENCO and will support them. Like the most senior SENCO in there, like a, like a mummy SENCO, a daddy, whatever it is. 
and they support and they can organize training. And it means that when we do training, it's one cost share between 10 schools. Um, so I, I don't think it's meant as an force through. Force through academy. I just think it's meant to be all schools are part of a family of schools, whatever that looks like and, and what works. And, and again, that's about sharing good practice. And that's what we should be doing. You know, we, we don't get enough time to just do that. I mean, yeah, I remember it's a long time ago because I've been in this, this, you know, education for a long time. But, you know, we did things like team teaching. So you could you could be in a room with another teacher and you team taught or you'd have time to go out and, and observe another teacher teaching. No, we don't get a chance to do that anymore. So how do we learn on the job? Yep. You know, we're in our silo, in our classroom, and we're working flat out. We have PPA time when we sit on our own in the staff room, or if we're lucky, we're allowed to stay at home. Um, and we do it all on our own. It's, 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 and that's not what education should be about. It should be pooling resources, pooling expertise and skills, and, you know, not being frightened to actually say, I really don't know what to do today with this child or, you know, because somebody will help you. But I think, again, too many teachers are frightened of saying that because they might be seen to be failing or not able to cope. Um, and, and the other thing that I will just say that I think we've, the last two years has really shone a light on is because staff haven't been going into staff rooms, they've been in their bubbles because, you know, they haven't had that informal professional development that you get when you're walking at break time or lunch time. And I'm hearing, you know, as I go around schools, that people are still not going back into staff rooms. They're staying in there. They've got a kettle and they're happy, you know, sort of thing. And I I think that's so sad because I think they need that support from their colleagues. So, again, I would urge schools to start getting back into some routines of where you're back together. It's a real balance because in theory you're making each little group, maybe that year group, closer. But overall, you could be um, the consistency across the school yeah. could be dropping. Um, and you might be going, well, the group I'm in is doing all of this. And you're not kind of in that informal, subconscious way, kind of monitoring what's going on no. across the school when you can hear over here. But if you're in a primary school, for instance, and say you're working in year four and you, you, you've got two other colleagues in year four and you're having your coffee together... That teacher that's in year six, who's got a child in their classroom that's working at year four level, they need to talk to those year four teachers about what sort of things they're doing in maths, you know, whatever it might be. But if they're not meeting together at any point, how are they going to do that? Um, and so I'm going to skip some questions. Okay. We've got loads in. Okay. And we could go off on lots of things. They're quite. I'm happy to, you know, answer questions sort of offline as well. So, um, um, so Louise has asked, and I want to talk about this one, is in terms of local inclusion plan, how does admissions, et cetera, link with academy? Those around me have their own admissions policy and therefore often found they refuse SEN students saying they are full. This is rarely challenged. Well, if every school is an academy. Yeah, and what the, what the review says is that they will they will give local authorities special provisions or special um dis, dis, dis what's the word I'm looking for yeah no dis, dis, oh, anyway it doesn't matter anyway. um that, that, so local authorities will be able to make academies take a, a youngster again i think because at the moment it would go through the trust and and go through the secretary of state when the local authority have no say well, commissioners have yeah, some say so in this. I think that there will be some system. 
But I think it's it, it it's got to be about culture change, and it's got to be about you know no school says no oh, unless I... there's a yeah you know, a genuine yeah and and if if you've got a child you know whose par- parents desperately want to go to mainstream, but you know they do need hoisting, they do need a bed for personal care. You know that reasonable adjustments might mean that you can't do all of that. You know, as long as you can show that you are you could you're doing everything you possibly can. So I'll go into a school and it's on two floors. They haven't got a lift, um, and and you know they they they've got a child maybe or they've had a child in a wheelchair. And I've sort of said to them, so what do you do? Well, we just move that class downstairs for the time that that youngster's in it. That's a reasonable adjustment. You know, nobody would expect them to spend tens of thousands of pounds on a lift. You just, you have to be, yeah. you can't just say no. No. <laughs> without thinking through the whole process. But I think I think local authorities really need to think about not only admissions into academies, but literally thinking across the authority, how many children are in out-of-authority placements. Yeah. And I think some authorities just thought, oh, the send number will go down or schools will become more inclusive, so we won't need as many. But that isn't happening. There's more out of that. You really do need to sit there and go, actually, this isn't a long-term solution. Uh, but it is, you can't build a school with lots of money while paying for them. To, so there's loads of that, but there needs to be more. But also, if, the lo- if, if all schools have become academies or part of a family, what the local authority have control over will be much, much less. Yeah. So it may well be that there won't be any admissions at local authority level other than SEN admissions, and then the local authority will dictate to a school, you know, you must take. Yeah, but is. I think in t- just going back to the outer county stuff or the outer borough stuff, I mean, the majority of the children that are out of county are because they've got very, very complex needs, you know, and, and there isn't the placement for them. I think there's got to be, if you like, an almost... Uh, regional, really, I think, and, and the regional commissioners might be somebody that would get involved in this, is what have we got regionally? Yeah. And, and yeah, you know, what provision is there in, in that region that would support, you know, a youngster that has got, um, you know, a re- really severe autism, for instance, who's nonverbal, who, you know, whatever it might be, um, you know, and how far is that from their home? But there's got to be that that process of... of you know, it's not just at local level, it's got to be at regional regional level. I think it needs to be a strategy of the type of schools. You talked about the non-verbal autism yeah. and the very... But you also have pupils with autism who are not coming in mainstream schools but can get the grades and those types yeah. of schools. So they literally need to go, what is our offering? What are people asking for? How are we balancing up? And you say, yeah, one local authority, Kent might be able to say giant, but where we are with Bracknell Forest and Wokingham and others, it's like they're too small, so they might have to work together yeah. To provide and especially something. around things like visual impairment, hearing impairment, where a lot of those children are, are fine in mainstream, they just need some additional support. Yeah. And you know, at the moment, local authorities are providing that, which means that you know, let's take the West Midlands where I come from. You know, ten local authorities—they've all got a VI teacher, they've all got an HI teacher. But actually, do you need one of those in every local authority, or is that something that could be commissioned regionally? And yes, there's more travelling for people, but isn't is, is that the world we're now living in? Yeah, Sometimes you, you may want to have a couple of questions. You can do a lot of that over teams. You don't yeah. always need to travel. No. And hopefully, people I think people are moving to that more. Yeah, because uh, you can if you can have someone have eight teams meetings in a day yeah. as opposed to just visit one, one school, school. Yeah, it's so much more. 
Um, Julie Lamb's asked, um, Julie Lum, sorry, Julia Lum has asked about um, early years and identified funding, um, like notional funding. So they, they talked about having special needs, like almost Senkos in early years. Yeah, they? they've talked about, I mean, there should be a named person in early years. There's also should be area Senkos within the local authority. Um, I think that having a proper Senko in an early year setting is the way to go forward. And I think that person should be doing it. It won't be an MPQ, obviously, but some sort of level three type qualification, um, which supports SEN. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's got to be funded. So that should be, if you like, part of that national funding, if you like, for early years. And I, I, you know, I definitely do think that early years needs better support and better funding. Um, and she's also commented that data sharing between health and education needs to be resolved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and every early age needs a portage service. Yeah. Um, Gary has mentioned as about the different banding for schools, and that, that could be a complete minefield. It is. I mean, it will be a minefield, and it, whoever's got that job to put that together, I mean, you know, there'll be... 3 million consultations and you know i think yeah, it's going to be done very carefully if it if it actually happens um and liz hawk has asked any sense where the new senko qualification might start well it's it's not going to start until it's legislated because at the moment the legislation says nasenko so it's whenever so it's going to be at least 3 years i would assume and the legislation that says you must do the Nisenko within three years will stand until the day the law changes. So don't sit there thinking, oh, I'll wait now, no. <laughs> because you will then be in breach of the current law. Um, um, and so, also, because it goes through various things, there's no point in really those providers designing the course. They can do go a certain way until it is actually enacted in law. Absolutely. I mean, the MPQs are very, are very sort of central Based in, you know what I mean? So the providers are just providing what's a national programme, really. Yeah. So there will be somebody somewhere who will be devising that national programme. I'm hoping with support from some of those Nasenko providers, but it will be delivered like most MPQs through the teaching hubs. That's how most MPQs are delivered now. Um, so Becky P's asked quite a bit, but I'm going to take the first part of your question is do you think? Do you both think um, there'll be more accountability? I am really hoping there is. I think if nothing else changes, because it all gets watered down, um, the two things I really want is more accountability and a more nationalised system. They're the two biggest things out of all of that. I think that will just have a big impact. Yeah, I think I think the change. We know there's changes coming to the Ofsted CQC framework for local areas. And I think that will tighten up accountability. I think they've realised that, you know, you can't leave it eight years <laughs> to actually look to see if a local authority's made progress. And I also, I do believe that the, the framework, the Ofsted framework for schools and early years settings and colleges, which came in in 2019, um, does actually support more inclusive schools. I think part of the remit now is to look at how inclusive a school is. They're obviously looking at schools that are moving pupils on, shall we say, um, you know, who are not getting the support they need from other professionals. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, that will embed over time. I think the issue, obviously, that came in in 2019. We didn't have many inspections before we went into lockdown. So we're only really just coming out. It's almost still a new framework in real terms. So, but I, all schools that I have spoken to that have been inspected recently, um, SEN has, it's been an integral part of the whole inspection. So in some ways, they in some instances, they don't actually talk to the SENCO. They are looking to see how SEN is embedded in the English curriculum or the maths curriculum or whatever. And then they'll, you know, they might just come back to the SENCO and, and triangulate it all at the end of the day. So I, I am I am quite positive that the new framework will make schools more accountable um, in terms of their inclusivity and what they're offering. Uh, Gary Freeman's asked another question. but I'm going to change it from a question to uh, uh, they should extend mandatory SEND EHCP training to health and care professionals in certain categories. I'm changing the questions to just they should. They should extend it so that because I see, I see arguments in my Senko groups about a doctor says, oh, it's up to the school and the school saying it's, it's, there is confusion around certain areas, who refers, who does, things like that. It does actually say that they will clarify roles and responsibilities. So I, that's how I see that. So, for instance, <clears throat> all of those GPs that actually say, I can't, you know, put them on an autism pathway, it's got to be the school, yeah. rubbish, because uh, it's a medical need. Um, that's because, you know, GPs were never trained in 2014 when we got the changes. GPs were never part of that training. Um, and, and, you know, yet they're the ones that are, if you like, the next protocol for families. If school's not doing what they need to do, they'll go to the GP. So GPs need to be trained. I agree, totally agree. Um, you know, but that's, that. you know, should go without saying, really. Uh, I'm going to just do a few more. Rachel's asked, if we are moving towards a more standardised national system, do we need a return to national training, e.d. the old inclusion development programme, but updated regularly to keep up with research and evidence? I would say no, but I would say... <laughs> Having a standardised system, so we've got Lorraine here, we've got Gary Freeman's asking questions, we've had Sarah-Jane Critchley. You're all, all people who tour the country supporting schools. And if you have one nationalised system, means everyone who is doing that as their job, it's going to make your life so much easier because it is, you can go to any part of the country, it could be the same advice, you'll adapt it to that particular. But it should, I don't think they're going to do it all centrally. But I think having that single system will make it so much easier for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the inclusion development program was brilliant, as was a lot of stuff that came out of national strategies. I, I just feel that, you know, we national isn't always the best, shall I put it like that. So it, it is about getting the right people, if you like, delivering the right training. Um, you know, we've got the... the um, uh, autism education trusts that are still, you know, we've got um, whole school sends through through Nason. I mean, we've already got quite a lot of national sort of figures that are delivering that training. Um, I think that I think there should probably be some national framework that says that every teacher should do certain amounts of training. And I, I, that's a, initial teacher education. I know it's not called that anymore, but early quick, early career framework. framework. I, I don't think the early career framework has brought SE in anywhere near as much as it should have done. Um, I think that, you know, during that, that 
that two those two years there should be some mandatory training there. Um, but then you know it's about it is about schools upskilling their staff to meet the needs of the children that are in front of them. So you could sit down and do, you know, a similar program to, you know, the, the one on speech language communication that as part of the inclusion development program, which it would be great and you'd learn a lot about speech language. But actually, if that's not the needs of the children in your classroom, it's no point. So it's, it's it, you do need to have it at school, school, school level, really, to make sure that you're supporting the children in, in that school at this moment in time. And next year it might be different. Because the, the cohorts will change. What you want is like sessions delivered by you and many experts. So yeah. You can watch online at any time. Absolutely. And and, and so stuff not, that you can go back to that doesn't exactly go out of date. Do you, <laughs> you know where I'm referring to? Yeah, of course I do. Could that be the virtual send conference? Virtual send conference. Because it is, you, you see, I used to go to many conferences. Capita used to do them. Yeah. And I used to travel the country and send them. But they're only like three or four cities. People would travel so far yeah. with the cost of travelling. And, and I don't think people are travelling anymore in the way they were. And we know that over lockdown, people did access online learning. You know, I mean, the Sendcast, for instance, that you, you know, you do. You know, people say to me, oh, I listen to that when I'm running or when I'm taking the dog for a walk or, you know, stuff that they don't have to spend a whole day yes. or two days sometimes because you've got to travel the day before and... You know, and, and you know, it's it's a lot of time, and I accept from a school, it's a it's a big chunk of money, but there, you know, there's you can do equally as well online, yes. and pick up, especially if you've got some interaction as well, you know, going on like we've got today. Um, you know, I think I think there's 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 new ways of working that we've learnt over the last two years, and we need to tap into those. I'm just going to read uh, Lorraine Smith has commented. We made about the family of schools, yeah. and she said there is a tension to turn the LA family schools into LA academies. And it, that makes sense. Yeah. They're already working together. All you're doing is removing the local authority from the equation. You, it, I don't know if it'll be really huge amounts of changes. No. I, um, I, I think that what will happen now is those schools that are no longer academies will either choose to join a, a, an academy that's already there or they will decide to become an academy in their own right and then maybe take some schools with them. But I don't, I, I don't think that local authorities will be a big driver in building trusts. They might be facilitating yes. and supporting you, but literally they'll be like putting you in the boat and then pushing you yeah. off. Yeah, and, and the people aren't there at local authority level to manage all of that. Um, and the last bit, I'm going to do any more questions, is there's a lot of comment about the need for appropriate funding and better support in general that is available. And that's the thing. I read all these promises. I'm saying this is amazing. But as with anything, changes at every level require time to implement. Yeah. And that's the bit that isn't in any of this. There is no time. They talk about all oh, this amazing CPD we're offering. They even quote numbers at you. It's like, but there's loads of providers like us and you and Jane. It's just so many people are doing this. So actually, that's nothing really new there. What would be really nice is, as you said, like doctors, they have to do 35 hours. Why cannot um, the funding be given to schools that every teacher has 35 hours worth of time allotted to them to do this CPD? Well, to be fair, once upon a time, a school budget did have a training budget that was 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 almost ring fenced and and you know it was up yeah. to the school but it, it was a you know fairly substantial pot of money that came in and and went directly into that budget but that 
it's not it's, it's how how important training is to score now as to how much you put in that pot and i think it's the first pot that actually disappears when you go but i think the, the for me and and i know there are some some things being done but it's really trying to work out how much does it cost to actually support a child with a disability from the day they're born till the day they leave education, maybe at 25. You know, we need to know that because at the moment, everything that's worked out is like plucked out of the air. And, and you know, in one local authority, that particular child is going to cost us, if they're in special school, they're going to cost us £10,000 a year, which is the base fund, and then another 25000 every year. In another authority, it's £10,000 and only £5,000 a year. Yes. And actually, that's that same child is getting the same support, but with yeah. a lot less money or a lot more money. So that's what needs to happen. We need to really work out how much does it cost. And I think that will be the shocker because yeah. I don't think anybody actually realises that. No, and I think <laughs> that's what they're really trying to say. But the problem is, is again, and again, if we go back to the removal of P levels, it's not how the P levels were intended. It's what it turned into. It was so wrong. So it was the whole intention of this is to work out how much we're spending, trying to be, as you said, it's not put more money into the system because they might be going, we're putting huge amounts in. How much of it is going into the tribunal process? How much of it is going to this process? How much is going, do you not know where? How much is going onto transport? So out of all of those monies, none of it is actually directly supporting the child. And if we can remove all of that. Services that actually are not performing. Yes. So it's 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 about really breaking that down. And I I'm not saying we don't need more money, that we always need more money, but I actually think that there is substantial amount of money in the system that could be used more effectively. Yes. And you know, I think that's that's a starter for 10, really. Um, no, some local authorities do not actually fully know their own budget at, in terms of SEND. No. They literally couldn't. If you ask them a question, they couldn't tell no. you the answers. And, you know, we know that most local authorities now don't have any support services at all, but some do. You know, some have still got um, SEND teachers that go out to schools and work yes. with kids like we used to have, but lots don't have that. Well, how can one authority do that and another can't? Uh, you know, because the amount of money they're getting should be, obviously it depends on the size of the authority, but it should be fairly similar per pupil across theory, the country. I think some of it, I think Surrey have had a big push to academisation years ago. Yeah. So actually how much money they have and their support to those who haven't academised will be yeah. minimal. Yeah. Um, so I think that academisation push in different yeah. authorities, but I think the academisation push in the local authority will reflect how well that local authority has been doing previously. Yeah. But also those academies, you've got really good academy trusts that have got really good inclusive practice with, as you say, a Senko in every school, a head Senko over the, all of them. They're working together. They collaborate. That's a fantastic model. And I wouldn't want that to, you know, I think that 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 works. So, you know, let's take what's already there good practice and replicate that instead of keep doing 152 different things or even 23,000 different things as we've been doing for many years. What would Gary Freeman do if it was also... <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm joking, Gary. But he, he probably sits there and goes, I can relax. I can, we're getting it right. Like, I've that's... always said, Dale, that the day that I don't have work is actually progress because it yes. means that 
I'm not needed anymore because the system's working. Yes. And I'm, I'd be happy for that. I know yes, I'm quite I old know now, exactly. but, but you know what I mean? It would, wouldn't it be great if they didn't need us anymore because actually it was all working in school? Yeah. That, that would be... It but, would. You know, we're not there yet. No, we've still got, <laughs> we've still got a long way to go. But it is, it's, I, think, I think if we can change the, the view of a Senko in school to be a senior leader, to be yeah. someone to aspire to be, but not just those who every teacher should aspire to be a senior leader or a Senko, should be seen as that sort of thing. And when a Senko subs, there's something they are listened to yeah. and they are valued, not be kind of, oh, SCN, give it to the Senko. Oh, yeah. I'll see what it is. It, it needs to be much more um, Every teacher is a teacher of all pupils. Whatever happens, Senko is there to support and assist and to, you know, be the next port of call, really. Yes, Senko, not a single do. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for t- t- today. Sorry we started badly with some right. strange audio issues. Um, sorry to everyone listening for that as well. Um so I hope I've gone through a load of questions. If you've listened to this after we've recorded and you've got all the way to the end and you still have questions, please still send them in because if we do get more questions, I've talked to Lorraine and at some point in the next month, we might be able to just sign, join up again and do another Q&A session um, just to go through um, more of your questions. But basically, I think there are good intentions in here. We haven't been given it enough um information about it to actually really understand it or make judgments on so i think it's really important that we all contribute how we think something should be or definitely how it shouldn't be and as lorraine said earlier if there's just one bit you're really passionate about please answer that if there's multiple bits answer that the more voices the more people's opinions we get um if it's working well if it's not working whatever it is we all need to put it in so that that is listened to, because I think, and I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the uh, civil servants in charge of this have never worked in education, if I remember correctly. No. So they are looking at it as a numbers game, as looking at information. So if we can get that information to them that it's not working, we need to do this, they will hopefully act on that information. And if you've got examples of good practice where something is working, put that in as well. Because, again, I think that we, we need to look at what's working well already. Definitely. We don't need to keep rebuilding Rome where we've got good practice. Definitely. Um, and for those who have no idea what the Sendcast, we've mentioned it a couple of times this afternoon, the Sendcast is a completely free podcast you can listen to Spotify, anywhere else, or through the Sendcast website. Um, and it is a podcast we started two years ago. I have lots of amazing guests on there like Lorraine, Jane, um, Sarah Jane Critchley, Joe Gray, so many amazing people who were hit, and uh, Kate Browning. And I was thinking of her earlier when we talked about various topics. Um, and it is really good because it is 45 minutes to an hour every week during term time and new episodes. We've got 90 episodes. Out, and it's just a great way to be able to just listen to people like Lorraine, share their opinions, share what they're going through, share what they're hearing and helping schools, hopefully, and just making you stop and think and hopefully improve your practice and completely free. Thank you, Dale. So thank you, thank you Lorraine. Thank you. Thank you everybody long, for joining us. It's been a long afternoon, longer it's than fine. we wanted to. It's all right. It's fine. But we've got there. So, yeah, um, please share your feedback. So if you've enjoyed today's um, session, all about the um, green paper, please share your feedback. And if you enjoyed it, also 
have a look at the virtual send conferences. We've got number seven coming up in just over two weeks, but you can also buy any of our previous ones because they're always available. And it's great because every conference is 60 pounds. Um, if you use that discount code, you save money. Um, but it's a great way of getting really good CPD for your school that you can access whenever you need to. And as uh, Lorraine says, it might not be that you all need to sit and watch that. That might be a child going through the school and teachers can watch it when, it when it makes sense to them. Because time is so, so um, important, short and important. So there's no point watching a year, a year six teacher watching something that they're never going to access for four years. They never need to know. They might move on by then. So it's important to access a training that's going to impact you over the next year or two. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, everyone.